The Ringer's gaming podcast, Achievement-Oriented, and our wrestling podcast, The Masked Man Show, are breaking off of Channel 33. You can now subscribe to each of them on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to the Ringer NBA show, and today we're going to talk to Katie Baker from the Ringer. She put up an article a few days ago, The Wizard of Washington. After years of disappointment in D.C., John Wall, Bradley Beal, and a cast of clicking role players have the Wizards on track to contend for a conference title, but the real magician is the new coach who's proved capable of enchanting game plans and personalities alike. And that, of course, is Scott Brooks. And Katie Baker joins us now. Hey, Katie. Hi, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Uh, okay, so first things, uh, the Wizards are obviously one of the great stories in the NBA this year, but, you know, you, you write a lot of feature stuff, and you're going to really dig into whatever story you're going to write. Why the Wizards? Why did you want to write about them? Well, um, going into preseason, I was just kind of um, intrigued as to what it was going to be like for Scott Brooks. Um, you know, I think just most broadly – I used to cover hockey a lot, and so the Washington Capitals are a team that um, kind of are always do well in the regular season and then just can't get past the second round of the playoffs. And the Wizards didn't necessarily have the first part under control, but they, they had the second. They you know just kind of had never gotten over the hump. Um, Washington fans just seem constantly depressed. Um, so, you know, to go into that environment, I was, I was interested um, with Brooks and then Obviously, when all the you know comments came out this summer with John Wall and Bradley Beal, where Wall said that you know they have a tendency to dislike each other on the court, I think is what he said, um, and it got blown into a, you know a huge extravaganza and harkened back to Brooks's situation in Oklahoma. Um, so those were interesting to me, and then that kind of got um, put aside for a little bit, and then when the um, wizard had their resurgence um, after a two and eight start. Uh, we just thought maybe it would be a good time to revisit that. Okay. So you said you, you covered hockey. And so you were well aware of the capitals and, and what they have been through over the years. They happen to say, have the same owner and you feature Leonsis in this article. So Ted Leonsis, what was your perception slash awareness? Did you have any relationship with him prior to because of the capitals? Yeah, so I had met Ted once before when the Capitals hosted the Winter Classic when they um, they have a big like outdoor game um, that they had at the Nationals Ballpark. Um, so I had met him briefly, and um, he's he's just an interesting character. Um, I think one of the first things he said to me was that he's technically responsible for the rise of Bill Simmons because he used to be an executive at America Online, and one of Bill's first columns was on like Digital Cities Boston, which was owned by AOL or something like that. So, um, so you know, immediately when I met Ted, um, I knew that he was, you know, the guy behind the guy behind the guy, I guess. Um, but anyway, he, you know, he's he's an interesting guy because he, he's really, he's always looking for the edge. He um, is very kind of contemplative about how he thinks about people. He is always watching people, you know, as if he's like a, you know, this kind of, not Wizard of Oz character, but he, you know, he'll he'll see one small interaction with someone and then um, make an assessment about that person's entire, like, leadership style. And, um, you know, and he sits, like, at, at 
both of the games I went to, I went to the Utah Jazz game and the Golden State Warriors game. Um, I mean, he sits like two seats away from Coach Brooks, which I don't know if that, I don't know if that's, you know, I know obviously there's plenty of owners that are kind of right there, but he just, I mean, he's practically sitting in his lap. Um, so he's, he's an interesting guy, but, you know, he, he's been through a lot with the Capitals. They've gone through a lot of coaching changes. Um, they've kind of settled right now on this guy, Barry Trotz, who's, um, you know, everyone just really respects and is awesome. And I think Ted learned a little bit about how to approach this coaching hire based on, um, you know, how things had gone with Trotz and how things had gone with the Capitals in the, in the previous years. Interesting that you mentioned the whole Simmons angle to this. He's mentioned this on podcasts before, but he may very well be the only person in America that still has an AOL email address. So his loyalty, <laughs> his his loyalty has remained. Bill says <laughs> to Leon. That's true. I think uh, yeah. He, the um, you know, the, the two men obviously over the years they just they don't even realize how much they're still you know attached to the hub. Okay, so is he a charming guy? What's Leonsis like? He, yeah, he's um, he has a beautiful office um, with like all these kind of you know framed posters of movies that he's helped produce, and um, there's a like I don't know if it's a leather jacket or like a varsity jacket, but there's this like framed jacket that says AOL on it that um, I think is to commemorate some certain number of like AOL downloads or you know AOL free CDs sent out in the mail and in the mid nineties. Um, but yeah, he, um, you know, like in, in talking about coach Brooks, it was interesting. The things that he pointed to, like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't these like specific matchups or rotations or anything like that. It was, um, you know, he talked about how there's been two times in Washington DC where he's been, you know, going to an event at night or going out to dinner and he's run into coach Brooks, who's, you know, strolling down the street by himself at night because it's nice out and he wants to do some sightseeing in D.C. And that, to Ted, is really important because it shows to him this um, curiosity of spirit and, you know, this um, kind of willingness to really take in um, opportunities. And, you know, he, he honestly, he told me a whole story about um, being stuck in traffic and looking out his window and seeing a sunset. So, I mean, the... That's kind of what he starts to talk about when it comes to Brooks. But he also talks about the fact that um, his words that he used over and over were that he wears well on the players. So um, he, you know, he, he kind of lets them do their thing. He pushes them, but he doesn't have the style where he's just going to be browbeating them or, you know, kind of wear out his welcome um, quickly the way, you know, I think some coaches kind of have a expiration date in terms of like their style and, um, you know, he, he talked about Randy Whitman a little bit and said he he definitely didn't want to throw him under the bus. Um, I think his words were that he said Whitman took a team that was, quote, scarred and broken um, and instilled a work ethic in the team. So I think he appreciates that, but he also found that after a while, um, for the young players that they have, it wasn't necessarily productive to have someone that was going to, you know, pull them from a game if they missed a shot or kind of punish, not punish them, but just not have the patience to let them, you know, make mistakes without the fear of, um, you know, major ramifications. So was he looking for the opposite of Whitman? I think, you know, in a sense, he, like he was, he was looking for, you know, they all keep saying, everyone I spoke with between him and I spoke briefly with Ernie Grunfeld, um, you know, that they would always use the phrase, uh, 
Brooks, we wanted someone that could, you know, develop young players, and he's shown that he can develop young players. And sometimes I wonder if that's a euphemism for, you know, managing the personalities of Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City. Like, is that what you mean by developing young players? But, you know, I think more broadly, it's it's just kind of having that sense of patience. And, um, you know, I think Bradley Beal wrote a blog post recently where he said that Brooks has, like, made a bet with him that um, he can't shoot 20 three-pointers in a game, which is kind of like an outrageous amount of threes. It's like what Kobe Bryant shot in his last game um, attempted. But um, But I think that just shows his kind of philosophy in terms of, um, you know, lighting a fire under them, maybe even doing it in kind of a, you know, on the surface a silly way, but um, it does give Beal that extra, you know, thing in the back of his head of keep, keep shooting, keep shooting, you know, particularly when he started the season um, a little bit cold and had to kind of work through that. Let's get to Brooks. A couple of different times it's mentioned in the article that he took a forced sabbatical, as it was called, right? Um, and I'd imagine that's his term, right? A forced sabbatical that he had to go uh, that after his ouster at Oklahoma City. Does he feel like he was done wrong at Oklahoma City? Did you get that impression? I didn't. We didn't get into that much. Like, he definitely, there were a few times where I said, um, you know, in a sense, when, when you when you see the things he did in his sabbatical, um, which involved going to college games, going to hang out with Popovich at Spurs practice, um, you know, he definitely made the most of it. But but when I when I said, oh, you know, it sounds like you you had this, um, you know, a sabbatical in the way that like a college professor would have it, like maybe that's a good thing. Um, he's, you know, he was very quick to say it was a forced sabbatical. I would not have chosen it. Uh, so, you know, he wasn't like directly bitter or anything like that, but, you know, he's a competitive guy and you can, you know, I'm sure that the way things ended, um, you know, kind of probably, probably still, you know, mess with him a little bit. Um, but he seemed, you know, but at the same time he was very much like, he knew that if he was going to do that, um, he wanted to make the most of it. He said, coaches say all the time, you know, that they want to spend more time with their family, and I got to actually do it. Um, and we were kind of joking around a little bit about how, obviously, it's not possible to happen, you know, in pro sports, just with the, the high stakes of everything. But I don't know. From my perspective, I think there should be some kind of program where coaches, like, have to take a sabbatical every now and then, or, you know, GMs, and just see the world and learn from other people and, you know, go to a football game and hug your wife. And, um, you know, I just, it's such a crazy profession. Um, so, you know, but obviously no one's ever going to do that. I said that to Ernie Grunfeld and he like snorted in my face. Um, so, but, you know, I, I also like to think about like what different coaches would do on their, on their years off. One of the things that I, I think it's Gortat that talks about how, you know, he, he gives this great quote about how Brooks has to manage the personalities um, in that locker room. And, and of course, everybody, when they think about the Wizards and they think about the personalities, they think about that quote about, you know, Wall and, and Beal possibly not getting along with each other. Um, why do you think he is good? Like this whole... And there's a line in there about guys should get a, I don't know if it's Brooks, uh, is, it says it, I can't recall, or if he heard it from somewhere about, you know, coaches should should take classes in psychology. Who said that one? Was it him that yeah, said that? Yeah, that was Brooks. 
Okay. Yeah. And the, and the whole idea is so much of, you know, team success or, or coaching in the NBA is just psychology of it all and dealing with these different personalities. And that was the high praise from Gortat. Just from being around him and then talking to him about this, why do you think he is good at that? Well, there were two things that kind of stuck out. Um, one was that he, it's almost like he kind of leans into a little leans into it a little bit. Um, I don't think he is of the mind that, you know, these guys should never disagree or should never kind of, you know, get their backs up at each other on the court. I think he, I think he thinks that's a good thing um, given who these guys are. Like he, he made a point to say that obviously going into the job, you know, he, he'd read the articles. He, you know, this was obviously before wall made his kind of, you know, um, well-publicized comments in the near the end of the summer, but even going into the job when he took it in April, you know, the, those those things were kind of floating around about you know the two stars. And he said, I don't know, he seems to be very um, confident in his ability to like judge people and to um, get a, a sense for people. So he was like, you know, when you when you meet someone, you kind of can tell right off the bat, like this person's going to require a lot of effort. This person's I think he called it, you know, this person's maintenance, this person, you know, I don't even have to think about. Um, and I think with those guys, he didn't, the, you know, his alarm bells weren't really triggered. He just saw two really competitive guys that sometimes disagreed. Um, and, you know, obviously have to figure out how they're going to, um, you know, balance their play a little bit. Like, you know, the, who's going to take the final shot? Who's going to, um, you know, take the final pass? But, um so that was one thing. He he doesn't seem to be like, I have to make sure these guys are best friends. He sees it as a positive. And then the other is um, something that Ted said, which was that he notices that um, Coach Brooks kind of allows John Wall to take over often, whether it's in the huddle or in practice, um, and that, you know, that has the effect of obviously, you know, giving Wall that leadership role. Um, it's kind of crazy on that team that he's – in a sense, like one of the veterans at this point, it's a really young team. I think Gortat is the is the oldest on the team, um, and then, you know, and it also signals to other players that you know that Wall's in charge and that um, you know what he says is a proxy for what, what Brooks wants to do. So, you know, I think he's kind of just empowering them and, and not not causing them to like conceal anything or you know not live into their emotions, but um, to just manage it and to try to find like the positive of you know why are we arguing on the court because we both want to win so I love the, we win and there's there's one of the times that he said that some of the it was something to the effect of sometimes the most uh, the, you the guys that you would think are the most impossible to coach are actually the easiest because they are so competitive and that's a learned thing yeah. because I think that young coaches when they've got the guys that are quote you know hard personalities that that's what they see and so it just becomes screw this guy screw this guy and then they all you know you might get banished to the bench or you might just be like you you might end up having to trade him or whatever but it feels like he's kind of I don't know he's he's come to this realization over time that okay there are going to be challenges to coaching all kinds of different guys but let's see the good in them. And like like I said, sometimes the impossible guys are the ones that can become the easiest just because they're the ones that will lay it on the line every single night, right? So that's what you get right. with them. 
Yeah, it's I, yeah, it's totally. And and you know, rather than view a player like that as like some sort of threat to you as a young coach because they're gonna you know you're gonna butt heads with them and they're they're gonna come out ahead or whatever. Um, it's like he just I just think he truly sees it as okay, you know, this guy wants to win as much as I do. Um, how do I like? How do we get on the same page? And how do I, you know, if, when you're a coach like him and you have the track record you have, not only as a coach but also, you know, these these players know that he was kind of a, a journeyman, you know, point guard in the NBA. Who, you know, I, I asked Bradley Beal if he knew that Coach Brooks was like four foot eleven when he was a high school freshman, and he said, "No, but I could have guessed." Um, <laughs> And, you know, so they have a lot of respect for him, um, just in the sense of, you know, he's not, like, blowing in there, blustering, telling them what to do. He's he's done it. He's done it on a lot of different teams. You know, he's been a coach in a lot of different places. He started out as a coach in, the in like, an ABA team where he was, like, driving the van. And um, I think those things kind of matter to a player where they realize that he's really, like, on the same team as them. And, you know, he's not out to, like – almost like preemptively, um, I don't know, cover his ass or something or, you know, kind of view them with suspicion or treat them that way. I thought it was fascinating. Let me move to Wall and Beal because you, you, you bring up the quotes from CSN that Wall made about them, you know, disliking each other on the court or whatever. And we've all done the, <laughs> the post-mortem on Westbrook and Durant, and now it feels like, well, maybe these guys weren't such great friends after all, right? Like, and... And this whole idea that you don't have to be friends, and it feels like, there, just from reading the article, there's no bones about it. Like, these are not guys that hang out on the off the court. And they have, I think at one point, uh, there's a quote saying, they have very different priorities. But the whole idea is, the, these guys didn't all of a sudden become really good friends, and that's why they can be simultaneously awesome for a basketball team. So we can't just give me some insight into that whole relationship, how that's working, and it does kind of feel a little Westbrook-Durant-ish where they clearly are were not super close friends, right, now that we look back. It's a lot easier to say that. Um, yet yeah. they were both able to be fantastic basketball players on a team at the same time. So tell me what you think about Wall and Beal after being around them so long. I think that, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to what I said in the sense of they, um, they don't, they know they don't have to be friends. You know, it's not like anyone's like forcing them to do like a, you know, a trust fall on a rope course (laughs) together. Um, And as Gorthat said, you know, they, obviously there are some players on the team who are best friends and hang out all the time. And he talked about himself and Sadoransky, you know, hanging in the club. Um, But and he said, we're like brothers. These guys, um, they're not best friends like we are, but they play like brothers on the court, and that's what matters. And I think that's kind of just the overall um, mentality, which is that you know, it, it, what matters is winning, um, and I think everyone can agree on that regardless of what you want to do in you know, the offseason or in your free time. Um, and I think they both acknowledge that they just need to – you know, it's hard. One thing that was interesting that Beal said was, you know, obviously you talk about taking the final shot and who's going to do that. But he actually brought up that a lot of times they, they're arguing about who's going to play defense on someone and, you know, who's going to guard the hot guy. And I thought that was, like, 
that's kind of like a good sign if, if that's the disagreement. Like, you know, it shows that they're, you know, everyone's always talking about how they have to buy into their defense and how that's the important thing. And um, I think without even really meaning to, he kind of um, demonstrated that, that that's, that's a big thing on their mind. It's not all about who's getting the numbers on offense. Um, you know, it's about – they're just both really competitive guys. They both they both want to be guarding the best player. They both want to be, um, you know, there on the court. And so, um, you know, but but, but, but everyone was like it's, it was so overblown. You know, Beal said he understood what he meant. I mean, I'm sure at the time, and I'm sure there's things that go on behind closed doors that you don't really see. But no one – I don't know. No one just really seemed – worried about it like they seemed they seemed more I think the bigger questions there are like okay we've got this great starting five like then like what are we doing in the playoffs what's the second unit like I feel like that's more on their minds like no one's worried about Beal and Wall going to Benihana together or whatever it is they said on ESPN I took the I probably took this the wrong way but you know there's this whole idea of they just got different priorities and then you do kind of explain through through the quotes of other people about the – it seems like the priority of Wall is just basketball. Like he has nothing else going on in his life that he cares deeply about. Like he is always watching basketball. He talks about watching women's basketball. He'll watch high school basketball, whatever. And so that is posed, and it makes me feel like, okay, this guy's basketball all the time guy. But it, what what is what are Beal's priorities then? I don't want to I don't want to frame it like this guy really cares about basketball and Beal's like, those those aren't his priorities. But what do you, what do you make of that when they when when the quote is that they just have very different priorities? What does that mean? Well, I think I think it was Gortat that said that, um, and I think you know like without putting words into his mouth, um, it, he probably just means like a personality, like kind of how their personality is, like, really manifest. And, you know, um, Wall is definitely, um, you know, just seeing them in, like, the, in the shoot-around, Wall is kind of louder, kind of chattering, making fun of people, like, you know, taking funny shots. Just You just kind of see him, like, bopping around. Um, Beal is, like, a lot more kind of robotic in the corner, you know, taking threes and, you know, not like he was, not like he had a bad personality or anything. It was just you, you know, it was it was kind of funny because I think it was like the first shoot around I'd been to, and it kind of captured so much about um, the you know archetypes that you've heard. But um, you know, Beal's also um, you know he he starts every um, post game remark with um, you know with a thank you to to God, and he's I think known to be like a lot more religious in that way. And like, and I I don't want to like again like try to draw too many, you know, insights into that. But um, but I think that's probably what he was referring to with that, um, just that they're different personalities. You know, they're, they may be the top two guys on the team, and they may both be, you know, guards, but they're, but they're, that doesn't mean that they're going to be the same guy. And um, I think, I think what he, you know, was also talking about there was how, he, you know, he just, he has, he says he could never be an NBA coach because, you know, take those two guys and then add 10 more. And then you're just starting to, to deal with like all the personalities you have to manage and all the, you know, the ways people see the world differently. Does it feel like it's Wall's team when you're around them? I think it does. Um, yeah, it does to me. I mean, just it, it, 
it feels a little bit like, you know, one in one A with him and Beal. Like not not to take anything away from Beal, obviously, but I do just get the sense that um, you know, even just like watching it in a game, he's kind of the you know, the floor general and um hearing Brooks talk about how, you know, he has kind of the eye of a coach and um you do get that sense. And you know, it's interesting because he's very like I mean, maybe I'm just too used to covering hockey players, but I'm surprised how candid he is about the amount of time he, you know, spends reading articles about himself or reading tweets about himself or, you know, he's he'll he's not afraid to kind of call out the Washington Wizards crowds if they're um if he perceives them to be acting like bandwagon fans. Um but he does so in a way that's kind of it's not like gratuitous, it's just honest to me. Um and I'm sure if you're a Wizards fan you've probably had your ups and downs with um, you know, what you think about the, the things he says, but uh, it just it stuck out to me. Like I, I appreciated um that he he never really seemed offended by a question. He never you know, kind of shut down. He just said what he thought and um, you know, it's kind of crazy when you like he's twenty six years old and sometimes I think he seems younger and sometimes I think he seems older and he's been in the league forever and um you know, but like I said, he's um, he's kind of the part of the leadership on the team at this point, despite being 26. I I loved the quote where he was talking about people sending him articles on Twitter or what people write, and then he said, he copped to it. He said, "I read it," and he said, "Everybody reads it." Like, don't let don't let <laughs> yeah. any of these guys tell you that they're not reading the stuff because they are. Yeah, you know what I mean. And usually yeah. the guy, usually the guys that go out of your way. Uh, to tell you that they're not are actually the most obsessed, right? <laughs> right. Kind of. Yeah, I mean, you, and you get the sense that he's also just very like aware of his um, his kind of place in the league and what he wants it to be versus what it is. Um, one thing I didn't, I couldn't really figure out where to put this in the article, but he talked a lot about um, when Paul Pierce was on the team, just how important Paul, Paul Pierce was to him as kind of one of the first guys that really showed him what it means to be a pro in terms of just, you know, doing the same thing every day and, um, you, you know, kind of having your routine and um, not talking but acting. And but, but one thing that he said about Pierce, and he said, he, you know, he was always really great to me on the court. And I said, what did, what did he say? And it was all, you know, you're the best player out here. Like no one's better than you. Um, <laughs> you know, don't. If he got upset, he would say, you know, don't, don't let it get to you. Just remember, like you're the best player. And I just, that just cracked me up. And he said he's probably saying the same things to Chris Paul right now, but Chris Paul might not even need to hear it. <laughs> yeah, where do where did you see Gortad in all of this? He's obviously a great quote. He seems like a really jovial, cool guy. But there was that part at the beginning of the season when they were struggling, and he clearly got away with it with the rest of the team not hating him. But you remember when he came out and he basically said their bench sucks, right? He called out their bench. He said their bench sucks. And I thought, boy, this is that, that's a that's a mistake to say that in public because every you know that's fine. You got the five guys, but the rest of the guys in that locker room are going to be like, wait, man, why are you telling everybody I suck, right? Um, yeah, and clear, it's like he, the guys he, that like may not necessarily respond to that kind of like quote motivation in the same way as like a yeah, starter. Right? But he's got the. He clearly has a standing. It feels like within that locker room that he was totally able to survive that and viewed as as some type of leader there, right? 
Yeah, I mean, he's obviously, like, extremely blunt in the way he talks about things. And um, so, you know, maybe some part of that was that they, they just understand his personality and, and the way he doesn't mince words. But, you know, I, I do think, like, he kind of has struggled a little bit. He was kind of struggling a little bit lately and starting to see some of his minutes go down. Um, I think he had a double-double, like, in the last game. And, you know, people are like, he's back. Um but, you know, I, like I said, it's kind of crazy. He's, like, literally the oldest player in the locker room, I think. Um, and he's, like, younger than I am. And I don't consider myself to be that old. Um, and he has an important role. He, too, kind of talked about talked about Coach Brooks in the sense of um, he appreciates that the coach will kind of respect him and treat him with respect as a player and he understands that sometimes that'll mean that um he can't you know have as many possessions as he might have wanted in the past or um that he has to as he put it forget about certain parts of his game um in order to focus on other parts um so you know i i think he's just kind of one of those guys that you know when when it comes to the playoffs um you need everyone to be kind of buying in that way and i think he is um you know, who knows, maybe he'll also be, you know, have, have things to say um, about, about his teammates. But yeah, I didn't get the sense that that had, like, any lasting um, impact on, on anyone. And, you know, honestly, he w- wasn't wrong in what he was saying at the time. So um, maybe it was one more of those wake-up calls that, um, you know, if there's truth behind it, people can tolerate hearing it. After trying to do this deep dive and you talk to the players, you talk to the coach, you talk to the owner, everything else, obviously you you spread out. Wall's having the great season. Beal's having a great season. Brooks is getting a lot of credit. But their their record has just been out of this world. They were like 29-10 and 10 in their last 39 games at one point, and they're now third place in the East. They're one game behind Boston. They're a game and a half up on Toronto. If I, if I just had to ask you, Katie, like, why have they been so awesome? What would you attempt to pinpoint? Like, what happened here? Why Why did they all – is it as simple as, well, you know, they just got the right coach for the right mix of guys? Because, you know, after being around there, seeing the culture, going to these shoot-arounds, et cetera, like, if, 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 if somebody just asked you, like, man, why have the – how did the Wizards get so good? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple things. One, I mean, one is that – we've had this conversation and we haven't even mentioned, you know, Otto Porter and Marquise Morris who are um, like, which kind of just goes to show that they have a, a, enough options and like a, a good enough starting five that um, they've kind of been able to, um, you know, different people can take over at different times. Porter, you know, kind of, I think right now is like second in the league in three point percentage. So that obviously has, has helped them. And I, I think, you know, is obviously exceeding expectations. Um, but then also I just think, like, I was I was thinking about this when they were playing Golden State, um, you know, which is one of those games where well, when Golden State comes in, you just assume that they're either going to win or, you know, they're going to have the ball in the fourth quarter, like, with a chance to win. And so even when Golden State was down, like, I forget how many it was, it was like 17 or 19 points, you're just kind of like waiting for the inevitable comeback, and and it came, and um, I think they were tied going to the fourth quarter, and at that point you're just thinking, well, oh man, like tied in the fourth quarter, and the way that they just continued to trade baskets and hit shots and have 
good defensive plays. And, um, you know, it, it felt like a playoff game in the sense of um, not only how it felt, but also how they're going to, like, it, it felt like playoff experience almost, like the kind of game that you, you know, you, you can think back to when you're in a fourth quarter and say, no, I know we can hit these shots because we've done it. So um, I think that kind of reminded me of the fact that if you start a season two and eight, like that's hard to come back from. Um, and it's probably really hard not to just have like the worst attitude in the locker room about. And it, it just really sounded like that's not the attitude they had. Um, and, it, you know, I think they just, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was just that, you know, everyone from the coach to ownership was relatively calm and no one was trying to blow anything up. And they understood that sometimes you just have to push through this, but I think like the ability to get over that um, and to not like freak out or panic or, you know, have like a big reprisal of the wall deal, like, you know, feud or anything like that um, says a lot about just the the mentality of the team. And, um, you know, and in a playoff series, like sometimes it feels like you're two and eight if you're down two games to nothing or something. And I think the, the tough thing is to like come back from that and, so, you know, they've shown that they can do that at least in the regular season. They've weirdly ended up being my league pass team probably the most this year just because they don't get a lot of national television games, which is odd considering having a, a player as awesome as Wall. And, and this article, honestly, Katie, and I, I know your, your intention as a writer is not to make people like people, but it just made me like them more, right? Is there a part of you that leaves there going, you know what, they're – worthy of rooting for, or do you think you will find yourself rooting for them after being around them? Um, no, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm, this probably makes me a bad journalist, but like I, I a lot of times when I um, cover teams, I find myself, you know, just having a, just liking them. And, um, but I think the wizards in, in particular, everyone was just, I mean, part of it was just, they the whole organization just was very like pleasant to work with. Um, they were very, like I said, they were very open. Like, I mean, I talked to John Wall for like, you know, 30 minutes and he was just, you know, it, he wasn't just giving like the same, you know, sometimes you have a conversation like that and you go back and transcribe it and you're like, Oh my God, I thought that was a great conversation. And he said the same thing over and over. Um, but that wasn't the case. Like he really had a lot of interesting things to say and, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was also just fun, like being in the, being at the Golden State game, there are obviously a lot of Golden State people in the crowd, um, a lot of kids and Curry jerseys. And, um, you know, you just think about how John Wall must see that. And he's like, you know, what about me? Like 10 year old kid that lives in DC, like, why aren't you wearing my Jersey? Um, and I think, but I think he also knows that those kids will be wearing his Jersey, you know, if, if they can make a deep run and, um, yeah, that it was just really fun to be at that game because the Golden State crowd kind of, you know, when they were trading baskets in the fourth quarter, with every basket there were cheers um, on either side. But um, the Wizards just kind of got louder and louder, and it just it really felt like you were seeing kind of one of those games that if they were to make a deep playoff run, they would look back and, and remember, you know, how that game went. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, I'm <laughs> my chosen team, unfortunately, is the New York Knicks, so... I'm always looking for another Eastern Conference um, <laughs> team to adopt <laughs> yeah. since the '90s. So, um, so yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm pretty all in on the Wizards. I was 
um, texting Joe House during the game, and um, and he, of course, was very pessimistic because he's a Washington fan. But um, but I had all the optimism for him. All right, last thing. Uh, the, the Capitals, the aforementioned, because uh, you said you cover hockey for so long, still, I mean, I, once again, have the most points in the NHL. They got 95 points. They've, uh, they're have they 44-15-7. Um, could you help yourself, or did you have to get some Capitals questions in? Like, I know you're writing about the Wizards, but there you are amongst them, and Leontis owns both teams. How did you, uh, how did you handle the whole having the best team in the NHL uh, playing in that same arena and you're sitting in there with the owner. Did you get any Capitals questions in? I mean, I didn't even have to ask any Capitals questions. He he loves to talk about the Capitals. So um, he loves to talk about Alex Ovechkin, which um, how can you not? Alex Ovechkin is one of my favorites. Um, but, yeah, he actually, he did, he, without any prompting, really, he brought up the fact that, Wall and Beal um, kind of remind him a little bit of um, Ovechkin and Nick Backstrom, who's another player on the Capitals, who's like a very quiet, um, friendly Swede. And then Alex Ovechkin is like this um, loud, you know, brash Russian that, as Ted put it, you know, he sucks all the air out of the room when he walks in. Um, But those two guys kind of are similar. You know, I don't think they've ever had a publicized dispute the way Wall and Beal have, but in the sense of them being two very different players who are both, you know, kind of the stars of the team and who, you know, coexist really well despite not being clones of one another. Um, that was something that he mentioned as related to the to the Wizards. And then I think I asked uh, John Wall if he has been in the Caps games, and he said he has, and he said he can relate, you know, with, with Alex Ovechkin and then also with, like, Bryce Harper of the Nationals and, um, you know, just all these guys that are, like, you know, kind of have their teams in a good place in D.C., but um, have yet to have anything really to show for it. And I think they all kind of have a little club of, um, you know, who, who can win the championship first. So, um, yeah, I, it would be, I mean, it would be really fun to have a, a Capitals, Wizards, you know, simultaneous run, you know, knock on wood for, for Wiz fans. But, um, but I think, DC has the potential to be like a really fun sports town. They're just they've just been beaten down for so long. They certainly got the stars. They got an awesome collection of stars there, right? Like you just get to go out. If yeah. you go, if you go to a baseball game, you get to watch Bryce Harper every night. If you go to a basketball game, you get to watch Wall and Beal. Uh, uh, well, let's just not even talk about the Redskins. But then you get to see Ovechkin <laughs> every night, right? Like you got real like superstar players, uh, star players in that. You in have that a city. you have a superstar. You, the Redskins have a superstar despised owner, which is a very important sports <laughs> archetype. So um, that that's. That's their marquee guy on the on the skin. Yeah, uh, she is Katie Baker. You can follow her on Twitter at Katie Baker. So make sure you go check out the article of which we talked about. It is uh, it's got a lot more stuff than what we all covered all today. You can get all the details. TheRinger dot com. The Wizard of Washington. The article's awesome, Katie. And thanks so much for coming on the NBA show today. Thanks for having me. Dig it. Thanks for listening to another edition of the NBA Show. If you dig what you're hearing, go give us a rating and review on iTunes, and we will talk to you next week.
All this month, we're asking you to tell a friend about a podcast they'll love. Right now, think of a friend, your mom, anyone you care about. What podcast would they really love? Got it? Now do it. Tell them about it in real life or on social media. And if they don't know about podcasts, show them how. Tell us what you recommend with the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-Pod. Thanks for spreading the word.